Back in Matthew, we uh, began a series uh, last Lord's Day in Matthew 1, and we are in Matthew 1 again. You can find it. Uh, someone call it out. What page is it on in the Pew Bible, the Black Pew Bible? 307? 807. I was going to say, that's a little, we're in the New Testament, right? Okay, come on. Matthew uh, chapter 1. What is the most common, I'll start with a question, a little uh, Christmas trivia here. What is the most common thing mentioned in Christ uh, mentioned in Christmas carols? What's the most common thing mentioned in Christmas carols? Joy. Joy. That's a, that's a good feeling. Uh, Jesus always a safe answer. I should have said besides the obvious, which is the sweet baby Jesus. Uh, what else is sung of in Christmas carols? The most common thing that is mentioned. Pardon me. Peace. Joy. Who was that? Who said that? Gold star for you, Laura Webster. It is angels. Angels are mentioned time and time again in these Christmas carols. And that's for good reason, because uh, any time in the New Testament, there is a significant shift at different points in Scripture, a significant shift, a, a great redemptive plan that is to be announced or enjoyed. Boom, there is the appearance of angels. Uh, which are, who are, heavenly messengers that God sometimes uses. Uh, sometimes uh, they're recognized, sometimes they're not. Uh, oftentimes, if they're come proclaiming with a great multitude like the shepherds in the field, uh, people are overwhelmed. In fact, oftentimes when an angel does appear in, uh, in radiance and a measure of the glory of God, uh, they will say, be not afraid. Uh, don't, don't be alarmed. I, I know it's startling to you, uh, but don't be afraid. Here is the message. They usually have to say that because they will bring uh, good news most of the time. Well, we're going to turn to, like I said, Matthew 1, verse 18. And we'll continue through Matthew all the way into uh, the spring. Uh, But obviously, building up to Christmas, we're giving a great deal of attention to his arrival, the announcement, the sentiment, uh, the details. Uh, This is is history, uh, but this is also hope. Uh, There are things here that are, are mystery, but they're not mythology. I hope you understand the distinction when I describe that. Uh, but even though you sat down, if I could, just in deference to God's word, ask you to stand again as we read these seven or eight verses. Inspired of God, Matthew records this for us. God's message to us, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from The Holy Spirit, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is God's word. You may be seated. Why don't we ask his help? 
Uh, Lord, uh, for many of us, this is a very, uh, sim- a very familiar passage. But I pray that even in that familiarity, uh, you would break through in a fresh way, that you would send your spirit so that we would uh, not only be hearing, but we would even be moved in our affections in response to this, your self-revelation. Humble us, Lord. Help us and lift up Christ in our affections, our thoughts, our lives, our priorities. For his sake, amen. You know how sometimes I state the obvious. Here's one. Not all Christians have the same view on politics. Uh, not all Christians have the same view on fill in the blank, music. Not all, not all Christians, devout, thoughtful followers of Christ have the same view on, uh, you know, the precise same view on things like biology and geology and the relationship between science and faith. But I will say this, you cannot be a Christian and not believe in the supernatural. I know that's a double negative. I shouldn't have said it that way. If you are a follower of Christ in all sincerity, you must believe in supernatural things. Thank you. I think you get the point. This morning is a lesson in biology. So I thought I would quote from Charles Darwin. Didn't see that coming? I know. He departed Christianity. He was in the UK, mid-19th century. He claimed uh, he left Christianity because of the laws of nature. The laws of nature. But listen carefully to what he says in his autobiography and see if there may not be another reason that he decided to depart from Christianity. Charles Darwin, that great biologist, while aboard the Beagle, he writes, I was quite orthodox, right-believing. And following Christianity, I remember being heartily laughed at by several people on the ship that he was sailing on. Several of the officers, he was laughed at for quoting the Bible as an unanswerable authority on some point of morality. But I had gradually come by this time, he's writing now about the period between 1836 and 1839, he began to see that the Old Testament is manifestly a false history of the world. He goes on to write, by further reflecting that the clearest evidence would be required to make any sane man believe in the miracles by which Christianity is supported. And that the more we know of the fixed laws of nature, the more incredible do miracles become. That the men at that time, he's now referring back to the people in biblical times of the writing in the New Testament. He says the men of that time were ignorant, credulous. He's saying they were gullible to a degree almost uncomprehensible by us. Speaking as a man in the 19th century, disbelief, he admits, crept over me at a very slow rate, but was at last complete. The rate was so slow, referring to that unbelief that was inside of him, it was so slow that I felt no distress and have never since doubted, even for a single second, that my conclusion was correct. I can indeed heartily see how anyone ought to wish Christianity to be true. And he goes on to say, 
Because he doesn't like the fact that there is judgment pronounced on anyone who is a sinner. So I, I, I can't help but beg the question, Charles Darwin, is it really because of the laws of nature or is it because of the judgment and the accountability of the God who made the laws of nature that you have a problem? Well, fast forward just about 10, 20 uh, years later in the UK, not, not in Cambridge, but at Oxford, uh, another scholar is raised up, well-known, C.S. Lewis, the literary uh, writer that we're familiar with. And C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, Miracles, and I just know it. It, it, I just know that he was thinking and reflecting and referencing Darwin when he wrote this. I can't imagine it otherwise. This is what he writes in Miracles. You will hear people say, quote, the early Christians believed that Christ was the son of a virgin, but we know that this is scientifically impossible. Right. Such people seem to have an idea that belief in miracles arose at a period when men were so ignorant of the course of nature that they did not perceive a miracle to be contrary to it. But a moment's thought shows this to be nonsense, and the story of the virgin birth is a particularly striking example. We just read it. Is Mary surprised? Yeah, she is utterly Shocked, she does, not, she does not understand. Does Mary know what Mary's been doing? Yes. Does Joseph know what Mary's been doing? Well, it looks like there's something growing inside of you. And I know where, I know where we've been, and um, this is not me. This is someone else. He's even willing, so stunned, so shocked. It's not that he can't believe. He understands the basics of nature and relationship and intimacy. He's not an imbecile. He understands very clearly that this is because God's intervention by, uh, you know, uh, the work inside of, of his betrothed, his, his fiance's womb, but also because of the spoken word that came and comforted him and clarified. Mary is shocked. Joseph, her fiance's in denial. He begins to assume the worst. He didn't need to talk to a modern day OBGYN. Kids, ask your parents what that means. Uh, These are not ignorant people. A miracle then is a miracle now. And when this is told to her, she realized that she's not simply having a supernatural pregnancy. Indeed, she is, but it's more than that. She actually heard the prophetic words, the promise of a Messiah to Israel and contemplating that it is coming true because of God working in her. If only Mary, you know, you know, you just think about if, if people then had lived now and we all we'd say, well, if I'd lived then, well, what if they had lived now? Mary and Joseph would be like, wow, this is pretty staggering news, right? I mean, if they had lived now, they would be like, we need to get one of those 3D ultrasounds, right? Let's see what this kid looks like. This is, this is, this is amazing. This is profound. It's the temptation of every generation, of every family that has children. It's the temptation of of, of parents to think that their children are above average. It's also the temptation of every teenager to think that your parents know absolutely nothing. I think that was a unique temptation for Mary, Joseph, and Jesus. Think about it, right? Think about this. I mean, surely he thought, my parents don't know anything. And he was probably right at times. And they probably thought he was above average. Okay. All right. So here are the two themes that I see in the text that I want to highlight briefly for us. One is 
there's clearly a divine conception. And the other, there's a human reaction. There's a divine conception. That's happening within Mary. Chosen, special, faithful Mary. This young, godly woman. Divine conception inside of her. And then there's a human reaction as we look to Joseph's response. Now, I'm not going to necessarily take these in sequential order. I'm just going to uh, you know, weave in and out of that, those two themes uh, throughout. There's some cultural differences that I just want to highlight here. And one of them is on the nature of relationships. You know, we need to have kind of a, 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 an ancient Near Easter DTR, uh, A&E DTR, ancient Near Easter define the relationship. Uh, in that culture, in Palestine, evidently in other cultures as well, you have people who are betrothed, right? So you get the impression that because of the language in the text here, they're actually married, uh, but they're not. They, they are engaged but that engagement at that time uh, must have had some type of legal uh, binding component to it because, it, you know, because of what uh, you know, is referenced here in Joseph's intentions before the actual marriage. Verse 15, that, that betrothed, it gets even more confusing because in verse 19, uh, you read there that uh, it refers to Mary's husband. Of course, there's, there's, in the original language, it's, it's translated just her man. Uh, but to understand it, uh, we, we say, and then, it's, and then he uses terms like he's going to quietly divorce her. Uh, again, that's speaking to the formality and the legality of that aspect in some measure. The Greek word here in verse 19, translated husband, like I said, just means her man. The angel brings a message that confirms that the dynamic of their relationship uh, is such that, uh, verse 20, he says to take her to be your wife. That's a future looking thing. So we're kind of in the in-between, but there's something heavy and legal and serious about it. Uh, their arrangement in this betrothal, but they're not, they're not fully married. We know that Joseph obviously feels affection, love and commitment uh, to Mary. And while it's, but unfortunately that means that he's all the more, what? Shocked. Shocked because he, he knows that they have not been intimate uh, he also, he's, he's, he's assuming that she has somehow with someone, he is shocked. He's, he's startled. He's surprised. He's, I'm not even getting there, am I? He's utterly shattered. I mean, he's eviscerated. He is, he is uh, the betrayal, the, the feelings that he must have had. Does he spin off into rage and, and revenge? No. Intermixed with whatever emotion he was feeling was obviously some degree of compassion because Matthew reflects on, just adds this one note about his character in verse 19. It says that he was unwilling, verse 19, to put her to shame. Now that's just assuming that the natural would have been, I'm going to post this all over the place. I'm, you know, I'm upset. I'll make sure that everybody knows this was not uh, my fault and she's the one at, at fault and guilty. He's not going to throw, but he chooses not to throw her under the bus or to take her out into the the court of public opinion for humiliation. But he's not moving forward, right? And that actually is altogether understandable. Don't try to read it backwards. Put yourself in the man's shoes. I don't, when you find out someone's character, or so you think in this situation with Mary, he's thinking, how can I expect her to be faithful to me? How can I expect her to be wise and self-controlled and, and, and pure if, if this is the posture she takes even during our 
for our betrothal and engagement. Something's wrong, and I don't think we're meant to be together. Her character's been revealed, so he thinks. She can find out whoever baby daddy is, and he can go take care of these, you know, these two. The practical problem is the baby. I mean, initially he's thinking, but the relational problem is between the two of them. How can I trust you? Why, why would I commit myself to someone who has this type of character? Consider if it was today, Joseph would have said, we better go get a what? We better go get one of them DNA tests that says, I'm not the, I'm not the dad. Then they would have probably gone and, and, and then when they got the, the, the clear answer that it was, you know, Holy Spirit, they would have figured out that it's inexplicable. Then they would have gotten that ultrasound that was 3D to say, what does this kid look like? Uh, but, you know, think about this. That's not my child, but he doesn't need to do that past or present. Regardless of the technology and the medical advancements, which we're, we're very grateful for, he doesn't need that because he knows there's never been a time that I have violated God's law or my conscience and slept with a woman who's not my wife. And he can, as a just and righteous man, you know, he's thinking to himself, I, I, I'm going to absorb any blame or any, I, I'm, I'm going to have to absorb the reproach of this if I continue and associate with this woman. What does Joseph need? Joseph needs Clarity. Clarity doesn't come with passion and emotion and, and you know, gut reaction. Passion will, will send you in a different direction. He needs clarity. And if you want clarity, then you need to hear from God. And that's what God does. It's a revelation. And frankly, at any crisis point in our life, wouldn't we want to hear? Don't we all? Graciously, God opens that to us. Not uh, you know, typically not, it's not, not angels speaking a voice to us, but God's word speaking and revealing his character, his promises, his truth, our hope. The angel's message is not only what you think, which is obvious. She is innocent. She is pure. But there's even more to that message. Not only is she innocent, but she is carrying hope for the nations. Life is coming through this child. As far as we're concerned, we read this huge, there's just a, a, a clear emphasis again and again by saying they weren't together. It was Holy Spirit. It wasn't Joseph. They weren't together. It was Holy Spirit. It's as if Matthew, in recording this, wants to drive it home all the more that this indeed, in fact, is a virgin birth. But I just even recently heard uh, one Bible teacher say it's actually not accurate altogether to call this a virgin birth because that would only speak to its supernatural nature. It's actually a divine conception. It is the Spirit of God who is bringing forth. There's more to this. Verse 25, well, excuse me, all the more, just to leave us with no doubt whatsoever. Verse 18, it was before they came together that she became pregnant, and that's still the case Right? Even after she's pregnant, because it was after they gave birth to the child in verse 25. And then and only then does Joseph become intimate with his wife. So again, this is not a, only a virgin birth. It's a divine conception. And why? Why is that so important? So God can show off. He can do miraculous things. I mean, it, it's interesting. It's helpful. It's 
I mean, certainly at times, but, but there is more here. What is being laid out for us? There are many reasons, but at the very beginning of the gospel account in Matthew, and for that matter, the canonical gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the fact that Matthew records this at the very outset forms the very basis by which we can appreciate how Jesus is to be worshipped. The basis upon which uh, Jesus, it's the, it's, the, it's the basis of his, his work as the Christ and our worship of him. In other words, he cannot be a savior if he's not, in fact, the God-man, as the Nicene Creed says. Very God of very God, light of light, that he is both God and man. And he couldn't be worshipped, at least he shouldn't be worshipped. If he's not the God-man. So if he does not have a divine conception, Matthew recording this for us at the very outset, then at at various points along the journey, we should be saying, why are they worshiping Jesus? And Jesus should be saying, why are you worshiping me? And and, and, And the Pharisees and the Sadducees should not be getting angry when Jesus does say things that sound like God. If they understood this truth, what we do, we understand he's worthy of worship by Joseph this is, this is not just the beginning of God the Son. Jesus, by the way, has eternally existed. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. But at this point, he comes down. He condescends. He humiliates himself. He, 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 he surrenders to the will of, of, of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit together on this redemptive mission. And he must take on flesh and dwell among us. And by Joseph... Adopting him, he becomes part of the line of David to fulfill what we heard promised uh, last week and many weeks ago in 2 Samuel 7. What will be his name? Well, Matthew already gave us that. He recorded it in verse 1. He gave us, all, he gave us the, the primary titles. He is Jesus. He is the Christ, because that's not his first and last name. I hate to disappoint you. Uh, we said last week it's Jesus. He is uh, the Christ. He is the son of the son of Abraham, the son of David. These are titles, but particularly we talked about last week that Jesus, uh, the name, verse 21, uh, is given so that Joseph is told and explained, she'll bear a son, you'll call his name Jesus, which in the Hebrew is Yeshua, uh, which literally means Yahweh, the Lord saves. The Greek rendering, uh, you know, we, we, we say Yeshua or Joshua to reflect the Hebrew, but the Greek name is Jesus. Jesus means the Lord saves or the Lord is my salvation. I mentioned that last week. Verse 23 confirms to Mary and to Joseph that Yahweh, which is the divine covenant name of, of, of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and J- Jacob, our God. We, we refer to him as the Lord Capital, Yahweh saves. But this is the culmination because it's bringing forth the full culmination and fulfillment of what was partially realized and predicted by Isaiah 7. That's why the quote is there. But a virgin shall, behold, look, verse 23, look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. But that was, even that prophecy, if you go back and read it in its context in Isaiah 7 and 8, what we discover is that there was a partial fulfillment uh, even then for the redemption and help of God's people. But this is the fullness of it. An actual child Messiah from the, king, from the line of David. 
But again, why is it so crucial that it be a divine conception and not just a supernatural virgin birth? Well, it speaks to his mission. Now, not just his identity, his mission. His identity is Emmanuel, title, uh, but his name is Jesus, God with us. But the name Jesus is given because he will save his people from their sins. Now, if you were to, 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 to transport that, even for, even for ears, their world, our world, their world, there would have been people that thought, well, you know, I know some people who are sinners, but I, you know, what we really need is someone who will set his people free from their and our oppression, our, the Romans, right? That, that we would desire and, and, and wish uh, for there to be someone to bring some peace to our our people. No, nothing wrong with those desires. It's just, uh, it was short-sighted. Ultimately, you don't need, by the way, uh, you, you don't need a divine conceived Messiah, someone who is a God-man, to defeat the Romans. <laughs> I mean, the Romans imploded on themselves, but, you know, I mean, there's, there's other reasons that, that civilizations and armies fall, and it doesn't have to be a, a, a God-warrior. There can be a warrior who is not a God-man to free people from oppression. But, you know, you could have resources and strength. But if you want to do something like forgive people their sins, well, then you need the God-man. It's very important to press into these realities for and let them rattle a little bit in our own thinking, our own mind, our own heart, our own priorities. Again, their world, our world. Folks, they're, they're, they, they long for a king to come and set them free. He was not a militaristic king at that time. He is coming back and he will de- demonstrate his power and conquer his enemies uh, with force. But right now, he, 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 he is coming with surrender and, and humility and meekness. And he is loving his enemies and healing the sick and giving sight to the blind. And he's sacrificing his own life. There is a future hope and reality that flows, though, from all of this. What does Jesus save you from? Okay, their world, our world. They wanted freedom from perhaps Roman oppression. We might say, what do we want to be set? What is the good news that would be relevant for today? Jesus comes and sets his people free from boredom. Jesus comes and sets us free from poverty and insignificant, uh, insignificance and, and, and people who say mean things to me. Okay. All right. Um, but is there more? Is that accurate? Is that full? Is that, is that the heart of it? Or let's just say it's something a little more noble. Jesus comes to set me free from loneliness or from worrying about the future. And that would be true. But let me tell you, Emmanuel, I don't know about you, we need a Jesus who is Emmanuel, God with us, so that he can save us from our sins. Because I don't know about you, at various turns and times in my life, I've needed the comfort. I've needed to know that God is with me. Our greatest need, your greatest need, is to be set free 
from your sin, from its penalty, from its power, and someday, ultimately, from its presence. Let me say that again. Our greatest need isn't to be freed. I'm, not, I'm for oppression ending, okay? I'm for loneliness being removed and peace. But I'm going deeper and deeper and deeper. The greatest need, and, it's, it, and this, is why I, you know, this is why I tell people, you think the gospel is good news? It is for people who are coming to God. And understand Jesus. But for a lot of people, the gospel is not good news. It is downright offensive. You have a problem. The gospel says you have a problem that is so big and you couldn't fix it yourself that God became flesh and came and dwelt among us and died on a cross. Because you were that bad. And I'm that bad. We need, to be, we need to be set free from the penalty of sin before a holy God, the power of sin that can, that can ruin our lives. It's still trying to ruin my life. Sin leads to death. It's deceptive. And it still has a presence in my life and in yours. And it will be freed ultimately, not just from the past penalty uh, before a holy God, not just the power of that, which no longer has dominion over me. I'm not a slave to it. By, by union with Christ, but also in a future way when he returns, we'll be freed from all of the presence of that sin. It's one of the reasons that we sang such a great carol. I'll go back and even highlight it here when we close in prayer. But this is where I really love the human reaction that Matthew records here. Because the human reaction to this divine conception, yeah, sure, you know, Joseph is filled with shock and, and disappointment, you know, perhaps even grief and sorrow. This is my future. Not, not this is before he knew about uh, the God man coming. But when he thinks my, you know, my, 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 my fiance has, has cheated on me. He's filled with shock and sorrow. But then Joseph not only compassionately cares for Mary, he chooses not to shame her. Then even further, he takes it. And look at verse 24. What does he do? He obeys the voice of God. I appreciate Joseph in this term because Joseph is not a man. He is not a human being who is being controlled by his feelings. I I wish I could be more like that. (laughs) Uh, You know, Joseph is a man who is not being controlled by his feelings, not his fear, not his fear of losing his reputation. Joseph is not, he is refusing to be led by things like shame and anger. Boy, that's gotten us all in a little bit of trouble. Joseph operates not out of, uh, out of feelings, but out of faith. How do I know that? Because Joseph operates with obedience. It's a it's a, it's a costly obedience if you contemplate it. He has to submit to the word of the Lord that came through the angels. Bear with, be faithful. There is good news. Absorb this, this, this blight, this shame. Love this woman, care for her. And Joseph does boldly. God smiles and we rejoice in the faithfulness of Mary. God smiles and we rejoice in the faithfulness of Joseph. Who were the first people to hear about this? Well, 
I mean, obviously, you know, Mary's Instagram followers. Uh, no, it was, it was lowly shepherds out in a field. Lowly shepherds out in a field, no name people, but that's just so like a son of David, right? That the shepherds get to hear first. And when they do, what happens? Who appears? Lo and behold, it is angels singing. Luke 2 records it. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace amongst those with whom he is pleased. The song actually says, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, goodwill towards men. But the, actual, but the actual language is peace on earth among those whom he is pleased. I, I, I had a chance to talk with a, a young man yesterday. He's a high school um, senior. Um, he, he lives about 30 minutes away. And we had a wonderful conversation about uh, faith and religion he had a whole litany of questions. And I said, well, I've got a question for you. At one point in the conversation, he says, you know, I'm working hard. Uh, he decided not to, to, to do wrestling this semester because he really wanted to work on his grades. And he says, I really want to please my, my parents. I said, good. That's, 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 that's noble. That's commendable. That's a, that's a beautiful thing. I said, have you thought about how, how often do you think about pleasing God? And he says, every day. And I said, good, keep doing that. But the Bible says, as clear as day, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So when Luke says, oh, peace on earth and goodwill to, the, to men. No, he says, goodwill to those with whom he, God, is pleased. It's not all the people of the earth who experience this peace. Who is it? You better be asking your question, yourself that question. Well, then who is this? It's all who surrender humbly coming to a place of repentance and trust in this, the only Messiah. You see Emmanuel that we were singing about earlier, we're reading about here, we're encountering on a daily basis Everyone in the world is meant to grapple with this name, this title, Emmanuel. I'm not just talking about the people who are walking through Shaw's right now listening to Come O Come Emmanuel. I'm, talking about, I'm not talking about you as, as, as people who identify or, uh, as, you know, as willing to go and worship God on a Sunday. I'm talking about every human being who's ever lived has to grapple with Emmanuel New Testament scholar Dan Doriani puts it this way. God is with us. If we believe he is with us to bless us and save us. He goes on to say, if not, God is still with us. So God is with us. If we believe he will bless and save us. If not, God is still with us to call us to repentance. If we reject that, God is still with us as judge. God's deliverance is the only one that works at all times. People work their plan out in life. And sometimes it works pretty well for a reason, for a season, maybe for a protracted, pleasant season. I'm not against that, but I just know that everyone has 
moments, times, turns, trials, troubles, where you know full well there's disaster and disappointment and crisis, even, at, even up to the point of death's door, and we want to call upon something, someone. And we're being told here, it is, he is, Emmanuel, God with us. Our deliverance, our abiding hope. We don't please God by nature. It's unnatural that we would stop pleasing ourselves and please God. It is natural for us to rebel against uh, you know, our parents, maybe you would you know, obviously argue. But even if we obey our parents, it's, it's not, you know, or, or those in authority, or we, we obey the wishes of others and deference and love and humility and all those things. Again, it comes down to pleasing God. But it happens if God changes us from the inside. I only please God and desire God and love God because he first loved me. We only have peace with God because, you know, God the Father says, this is my son and who I am well pleased. And I'm united to Christ. And you can be united to Christ this very day. We need Jesus to come in order to do this, not just to come and die for our sins, but to live for us. Colossians 1, Paul writes of Jesus, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus made peace, granted to us who are followers, trust him by faith, peace with God, the Father, the Holy One. He gives us that peace through violence. The violence is the death that was brought upon himself as he dies in our place that we might enjoy peace with our holy creator and heavenly father. What are some of the signs that you've been united to Christ? Well, I think one of them is wonder. I mean, do you wonder? Do you stand in awe? I mean, this is clearly operative later with Mary and Joseph. It's still gonna be a struggle for them, right? Every new parent, I look at them in the face and I say, You're, after the, the baby's born, I go visit them in the hospital and I, uh, I, I, you know, I want to baptize this baby as soon as possible. And I, I look at them and I say, listen, your life's never going to be the same. Some of you are on the cusp of that for the second or third time and it's still not going to be the same. For Mary and Joseph, it's still going to be hard for them. They still had questions. They still had doubts. There were times that they're confused about Jesus and his mission, and so are we. Jesus was born in human flesh that we, who are enemies of God in our pride and our sin, could be reborn as children of God, adopted into his family because of a rebirth. It's the very passage I mentioned last week when I said, in that genealogy in the first 17 verses, you're going from people who are righteous and wise to people who are foolish and rebellious. And, and generation after generation, there's this, this turnover. Even with wonderful, godly, faithful parents, what should we do in response to that? Despair and throw our hands up? No, we should pray for our children and our grandchildren that they would be born of God, not born just of the flesh, no one, no one just inherits the, the, the faith automatically. We know that generation to generation, John 1 writes, but to all who did receive him, 
Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. Just, just as much as, 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 as we contemplate the mystery of the Holy Spirit, uh, you know, granting to Mary a child, it's the power of the Holy Spirit that, uh, that regenerates and gives us a rebirth and, and, and causes us to see and surrender and be enfolded into a family that is so much greater than any family on earth. That can happen for you today. If you admit that you're a sinner, it's the ABCs, admit you're a sinner, believe on Jesus Commit to following him wherever he leads. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you this morning for your word. Lord, we love you. Help us to love you more. We trust you. Help us to trust you more. Thank you for bringing peace, but moreover, I thank you for bringing forgiveness. Lord, forgive us for trying to find peace and joy in other things. And we do thank you for those gifts. And we do thank you for uh, where we live and how we get to live. But forgive us, Lord, for being foolish to trust in those things and not you. Forgive us for being shy about our faith. Give us boldness, even joy in talking with other people about you who, is, you who are our hope. Help us to be bold in speaking. Even give us divine appointments to speak and testify of the goodness and the good news of King Jesus. We know that it's the time of year that people enjoy celebrating, but for some, it's a struggle, to say the least. Relationally, emotionally, financially, otherwise, it's hard. Meet them, comfort them. There's some that are spending Christmas, maybe even for the first time, without a loved one. Meet them, comfort them. Help us to have our eyes uh, attentive. Give us compassion. Have mercy on those who are traveling. Have mercy on those who are struggling with relationships and health and deep emotions like grief and anxiety. Help us to abide in Christ for we're promised and we're told that we can bear much fruit there. Even now we pray in Jesus' name and as he taught his disciples, saying together, our Father who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I invite you to stand as we respond uh, together in song.